and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee Stud. The Tennessee Stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud is here. Please welcome the creator of the popular 605 podcast and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Ryan Last. Hello again, friends. And welcome back to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Brian Last. It's my pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee Stud takes us down that road of wrestling history, up and down the Smoky Mountains sometimes, even into eastern Kentucky. But we'll be getting to all that in just a moment. But without any further ado, the man of the hour, the host of the Studcast, the legendary Tennessee Stud himself, Ron Fuller. Ron, how are you? I'm great, Brian. Doing absolutely wonderful, man. Happy to be here. Uh, just uh, looking forward to the day. Got got old Lightning saddled up, and we're ready to ride, my man. Well, just hold on the Lightning for one second, Ron. I know you have an announcement you want to make here at the top of the show, but before we get there, I just want to make a quick mention that the latest edition of the Super Studcast, Super Studcast number 23, part one, is now available with Dr. Tom Pritchard. This is an amazing 90 minutes of wrestling history because Dr. Tom wasn't just a fantastic wrestler, one of the best wrestlers I ever saw live. I was fortunate I got to see him a lot in Smoky Mountain Wrestling Live, but also a wrestling fan. We may even say a wrestling historian. So this conversation goes real deep into Houston wrestling, Texas wrestling, continental wrestling, and so much more. We'll tell you a little bit more about it later in the show, but check it out today. I guarantee you, you will like this one. TNstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast ron i know you have an announcement you want to make here yeah i appreciate that brian uh yeah this opportunity is a really nice uh, uh there's a, an event on saturday night november 23rd in dalton alabama uh, to celebrate the phenomenal life of one of who i think is one of the greatest wrestling stars of all time wwe hall of famer bullet bob armstrong the Bullet just celebrated his 80th birthday and 60 years in the ring, which is just to me absolutely unbelievable. This tribute on Saturday night, November 23rd, to one of the best friends I ever had, will be held at the beautiful crossing at Big Creek Facility that's formerly known by Center Stage on Highway 231 just outside of Dothan, Alabama. Uh, your host will be uh, Bob's son, WWE road dog Brian Armstrong. Uh, former wrestling commentator, uh, Southeastern wrestling commentator, I should say, Charlie Platt, and yours truly. I will be there as well. Uh, it'll be a, We're going to have a meet and greet for all the fans attending, numerous Southeastern and Continental videos with the guest of honor on the 
huge screen. Obviously, there will be a lot of Bob Armstrong matches. Uh, video tributes from wrestlers all over the world to one of the greatest. And question and answer session for the fans. A special guest for Bob Armstrong and those that know him well will have a pretty good idea who that lady may be. An unforgettable evening for all who attend, I can tell you that. Uh, we can get You can get your tickets in advance if you'd like to at even, even Eventbrite, that's E-V-E-N-T-B-R-I-R-T-E dot com, or thecrossingsbigcreek.com, or you can get them at the door. They're only $30 a person or $50 for two seats. So uh, this is going to be an extraordinary event, and I'd like to invite any wrestling fan that's a fan of Bob Armstrong to come and see this. It's going to be a night full of memories, laughter, and love, just downright love for one of the greatest of all time. Uh, and uh, I will give everyone the ticket info again at the end of today's show, just the ticket portion here about how you get these tickets in advance because this event's selling very fast, and uh, it's a, it's not a big building. It's a beautiful building inside, but it's not very large. So that's basically what I wanted to get to. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I like to invite anybody that you're a big Bob Armstrong fan. This is something that you will never see again. And, uh, and, uh, it's going to be great to just be a part of it. It sounds like a fantastic event, Ron. And who knows, maybe the bullet will turn on the stud one last time. You never know what'll <laughs> happen. But Ron, We'll talk a little bit more about that later in the show. Like you said, where are we going today on the stud cast? Well, I've only had two matches in the month of October uh, due to my significant, obviously, my collarbone injury. We're going to talk about one of those matches today, and that's in Memphis. Where we're going to take a look at the Knoxville cards for Friday, October 17th and 24th with the results, the TVs associated with them, the gross houses, and the payoffs like we do on many occasions. We're also going to hear some very historic audio from the actual Southeastern Wrestling TV shows of 1975. Uh, these sound bites are compliments of two brothers from Knoxville that recorded and saved those shows for all these years and uh, others that we may be able to hear in the future. Uh, they recorded a lot of stuff, and uh, today's audio will be the actual first personality profile with Ron Wright ever done on Southeastern Wrestling's television. And we'll finish with my present physical condition concerning my injury at the time of the update and uh, and when I'll be able to return to the ring. So we've got a pretty pretty uh, full show here today, Brian, and uh, I'm just going to jump right in, my man. Uh, I want to begin today with the sixth of the nine total matches on October 6, 1975, that I had promised Jerry Jarrett that I would do for him in June of 1975 when I started to do my archaeological dig. Uh, and I had to drop out of wrestling for a couple of months. Uh, and uh, again, I'm off to Memphis for, thank goodness, another tag team match with Robert and I, because uh, I would have had a real difficulty in doing a singles match at this point. Uh, and we are going to be wrestling against Ken Dillinger and Cowboy Parker, guys that had been wrestling for me in Southeastern quite a bit. We're going to wrestle them in Memphis. Uh, we're going to get a win over them, obviously. I felt a little better, and I did more than I had been doing in the other matches previously to that when I had been in Louisville a couple of times and in Memphis a couple of times before. But I realized quickly that I still had a long way to go before I was well. I flew back to home, Knoxville, the next morning, and my right collarbone was in a great deal of pain again. 
I probably heard it a little bit the night before, and it had been about six weeks at this point since my injury. And I was beginning to wonder, quite honestly, just how long it's going to be until I could go back into the ring again. And we're probably going to get to that later in today's program. Uh, let's go to the card of Knoxville on Friday night, October 17th, 1975 in Chihuahua Park. Uh, we're still in the amphitheater if the weather is good. Uh, it's starting to get colder every Friday night as the fall continues because we're so close to the Smoky Mountains. I knew we were going to be lucky to get any more warm enough nights to stay outside in the amphitheater. And uh, oddly enough, this night on the October 17, 1975, is going to be the last Friday night that we're going to be outside. From then on in Chihuahua Park, we're going to have to be in the Jacobs Building. So a great star opens the card that night on October 17, 1975. My brother and I had watched this guy wrestle so many times in Georgia, and he was a darn legend in Georgia in the, in the late 60s. Uh, just really, really a huge star, and even into the early 70s. Uh, he was, like I said, a, a darn right, downright legend in, in, in Georgia, El Mongo would be wrestling for only one night, and he's going to be managed that night by Rock Hunter, who's his personal friend. They're both from Atlanta at this point. And uh, El Mongo is going to wrestle against Frank Dillinger. And I would have loved to gotten this guy on a regular basis to stay in my territory. He was just so good at this point. Uh, he was a little past his prime, but he was still magnificent. Uh, so at, at least the Southeastern fans were able to see him once. So, and, uh, and I was happy about that. And, you know, there's going to be another Mongolian wrestler that's going to come along to Southeastern wrestling in the near future. And he's going to scare the hell out of Southeastern wrestling fans. And that's going to be the Mongolian stopper. So on this Friday, October 17th, El Mongo won his only match ever for Southeastern wrestling. The up and coming Charlie Cook who's been here now for about three weeks in Southeastern, uh, is really starting to get over, won the second match of the night over Don Lambert, who was another new big heel that I wanted to see in action. I talked to him. Uh, I had a couple of guys tell me a little bit about him. He was a big guy. And uh, so I wanted to take a look and see if there were, he, he had what I thought was potential and I would want to keep him maybe. So Lambert wasn't bad. Uh, and he made Charlie Cook look very good in that match. And that says a lot for a guy, young guys, that uh, sometimes want to go out there and try to get themselves over when they're not ready and they should be thinking about getting their opponent over. This guy had the right frame of mind. I could see it. And uh, I'm going to hang on to this boy for a little bit. I think he had a future. Uh, had a ladies' match that night. Uh, and uh, I had Vicki Williams in. She won over Vivian St. John. I, I still liked, I, I wasn't really fond of lady matches, but I liked them in Knoxville because they, they, they really appealed to the older fans remaining. There were holdovers from the John Kazana era, the previous owner's days. Uh, the fourth match uh, was the very first ever between Tommy Siegler and Norvell Austin in Southeastern Wrestling. Uh, what a great match. And the crowd was on their feet for almost the entire match. Uh, Siegler took the victory with a small package. But Norvell then, uh, after it was over, booted him out of the ring. And uh, 
and end up being the man in the ring with his hands in the air. Uh, they went more than 30 minutes. And in that day, with two great workers like these two guys were, they were going to get the crowd into it every night. I don't care where they went. If they're going to be in that ring for 30 minutes, that crowd is going to be into that match. Uh, these guys were really super together. Like I said, first time they'd ever wrestled in Southeastern, and I'm pretty darn sure it was the first match they ever had together. And you can tell a lot about where guys can go and take you when they have great matches with each other the very first time they wrestle. So uh, that was a tremendous event. It was most unusual. There are two black wrestlers in uh, in the state, on the eastern side of Tennessee, and it, uh, you know, the fans really, really enjoyed it. Uh, so the main event that night was a little match uh, between the current ten Tennessee Tag Champions, the Assassin and Rock Hunter, against Ron Wright and my brother Robert. It was a tornado tag match with all four men at the ring at the same time with brass knuck rules. I mean, uh, falls don't count, uh, 30 seconds uh, after the bell to get to your feet. You know, same type of rules as a kind of a Texas death match. But, uh, you know, that the brass knucks rules were just slightly different. Uh, it was a bloody match uh, with the challengers, Wright and Robert, getting a win in spite of the fact that Norvell Austin got involved at the end of the match. Uh, and it seems like at this point, Norvell is really beginning to gel along with these two guys of the Assassin and Rock Hunter. Uh, we recorded the brass knucks match uh, just to show the following day on TV. Probably we're going to need it. Ron, what was the house for that show? And also, what were the payoffs that you gave the boys? Well, we drew, uh, Brian, almost 3,000 fans again, about 2,900, and grossed around, around $9,000. The total payoff was about 2,500. The guys on the bottom of the card, El Mongo, Dillinger, Cook, Lambrick, the two lady wrestlers, and the referee, they all got about 160. Austin and Siegler got 200 each. And Ron Wright, uh, my brother Robert, the assassin and hunter, the guys in the main event, got about 250 each. Uh, I think those guys were probably pretty darn happy with that type of night, considering they were in the month of October and uh, we were in Chill Howie Park. So uh, I wasn't unhappy with it, and I'm pretty sure that they weren't either. So let's talk a little bit uh, about the TV on Saturday, October 18th, which is the following day, that's going to promote the following Friday night of October 24th. The TV opens up for the new tag team that Jerry Jarrett had recently added to his many teams that he, that he normally carried over there on the west side of the state in Memphis territory. Uh, Jerry was very fond of tag team wrestling, and he always had some pretty darn good, decent uh, tag teams. This team was different because of the very famous name they used for their team. I don't think they had any association or certainly any uh, any lineage that took them back to the great Buddy Rogers, but the team's name was Buddy Rogers Jr. and Lenny Rogers. Uh, it's very interesting because, it, you know, as I said, it's, it's very questionable that they had any relations, and I don't think they had any relationship to Buddy Rogers whatsoever. Uh, didn't even look like Buddy Rogers. But uh, I don't know... Uh, how long these two wrestlers lasted or their tag team relationship. I had never heard of them before. And after I see them this one time, I really don't want to see them again, to be quite <laughs> honest with you. They are not very good. 
you know, and uh, and I know they they worked this TV for me because I figured with that name Buddy Rogers, they 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 would be talented. I thought if you had nerve enough to take a wrestler's name like Buddy Rogers, that you're going to be pretty darn good in the ring. I mean, it was insulting, you know. <laughs> After I watched a few minutes, or gosh, these guys are making Buddy Rogers uh, they're killing his legacy, you know. So it was really really bad. I know that they worked this TV for, uh, because I figured that the name Buddy Rogers, that they were going to be talented. I was wrong. <laughs> Definitely. I was just dead wrong about that. Uh, they would come back the following Friday to work a tag match for me, and it would be their last time to work for Southeastern. They must have soon disappeared from Memphis also. I don't think they lasted very long over there. They were not very good in the ring, and they certainly didn't look like Buddy Rogers uh, at all. And uh, I was lucky enough to have seen a live match with Buddy Rogers versus my father's uncle, Lester Welch, in Memphis, Tennessee, in the late 1950s. I was in the fifth or sixth grade. I was about 11 or 12 years old. And I'd seen enough live matches at that point in my life to know that when I watched Buddy Rogers, I realized that this guy is something special. And uh, I've watched many, many Buddy Rogers matches since. He is, to me, one of the greats of all time. And uh, we know a lot of people have tried to copy Buddy Rogers. And I won't go too far there about who that may be. But uh, on that Saturday, the Rogers team defeated DeVoy Brunson and George McRae. But it wasn't a very good match. <laughs> it's going to be honest with you. It, it made me happy that I'd only booked them for only one week or one show. Uh, they came to the set with Les after the first commercial break to do the interview about their upcoming Southern Tag Championship match with the new champions, Charlie Cook and Tommy Siegler, the following Friday night. Turned out they weren't very good on the microphone either, Brian. They, they were really two losers uh, from start to finish. So uh, they are not going to get a long run. They're going to get uh, two matches in Southeastern, and that would be the history for them. The second match on TV was the new Southeastern Tag Team Champion, Tommy Siegler and Charlie Cook, and they'd won those titles two weeks earlier against the interns, managed by Dr. Ken Ramey. And on the TV, they're wrestling against Don Lambert, this new guy that came in the night before, big guy, and Tony Peters, another guy that weighed over 300 pounds. Uh, Siegler and Cook went to the set with Les after the match, and uh, they, it didn't take them long. The match didn't last very long. Charlie Cook uh, pinned Tony Peters in the match. That was the outcome of it. And then Siegler and Cook went to the set with Les, and they watched the championship win over the interns two weeks earlier. It had never been shown yet on television because they were booked in single matches uh, the, the night before. And, uh, you know, it didn't make any sense to show them winning the tag team and then splitting them up and putting them into single matches the next week. So I held the tape, and I knew that they would be on television and we would have them back in in championship matches. And so we had the opportunity then two weeks after the actual winning of the, the title to show that win. And it obviously made sense at that point to show them win the Southern Championship uh, against the powerful team of the interns and Dr. Ken Raby. They were as far away at, from Buddy Rogers Jr. and Lenny Rogers as you could possibly imagine when it came to talent in the ring. And so they're going to they're gonna stay at the set with Les 
uh, and make their comments two minutes later after the upcoming title th- title defense against the family members of the Buddy Rogers family. You know, they're going to talk about defending their title against the Buddy Rogers family. Well, you know, they're not the Buddy Rogers family, and they certainly shouldn't have been in the ring with Siegler and Cook. So before we continue, Brian, I'd like to explain how difficult it was for me during my first year of owning Southeastern to exchange talent with another territory. I'd never I'd never been a promoter before. I'd never been an owner before. I'd never booked before. I'd never had to get my own talent before. And uh, this was all new to me. And uh, I was I was lucky in a way that Jerry Jarrett was across the state from me. And I had a good relationship with him. Uh, but the situation with the interns and the Rogers team that we just spoke of uh, that were sent to me from Jarrett uh, is a great example of why I was, I was just, it, it, it was all difficult for me. Uh, Jerry knew the interns were leaving his Memphis territory, and he had let me use them on three of the last five, six Fridays in Knoxville. He offered, even offered to let me put their titles on Siegler and Cook. And, you know, I, I wasn't about to turn down that opportunity. I mean, what a great win for two new guys that haven't worked together much to beat a team like the interns for the for the Southern uh, Tag Championship. So I took him up on it. Uh, then the part of the deal, the second part of that deal was that you can keep him as champions, Ron, for a couple of weeks, but then I'm going to send you another team in there, and I'd like for them to win the championship back from Charlie Cook and Tommy Siegler. So it was a good deal. I mean, I felt like that Siegler and Cook getting a win over the – the uh, interns was well worth uh, them having to drop the title to somebody that I hope would be significant. Well, it turned out to be a little bit different than what I had anticipated. It seemed like a good arrangement. It made my talent look good with a win over the interns. But then it ends up with me having to beat the new Southern Tag Team Champions right in the middle in Knoxville with a sorry team like Buddy Rogers Jr. and Lenny Rogers. You know, that's the team he wanted me to put the belts back on. Uh, That fact was made even more difficult when I had to sit down with Tommy Siegler and Charlie Cook and explain why they had to drop the team, (laughs) drop their titles to a team as lousy as (laughs) these two Rogers guys. You know, it was was a nasty little – it was a predicament I did not want to be in again. Uh, And that fact was made even more difficult – you know, and I sat down and talked to him about, uh, you know, we need to get this done. And I told him, I'll try to level with guys as a booker and uh, as an owner of a company. Uh, you want to you want to be straight with guys and tell them exactly why this is happening. And I made a mistake. I, I, we we're going to switch the title back. I expected it to be a better team. I can't believe that these are the guys he wants to put the belts on. But, you know, I'm a man of my word. And, uh, you know, they worked with me. They 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 saw it. Uh, that type of ridiculous conversation with two of my best baby faces, it really pushed me extra hard to fill my Southeastern Wrestling Company with all the talent that I needed. I didn't want to take guys from anybody anymore. I wanted to have everybody that I needed right there. Then I knew what I could do with them. I knew who to put the belts on, when to take them off, when to put them on somebody else. So... 
I kind of actually felt sorry, a little sorry for Jerry Jarrett because he lost a great team like the interns, and he had no better choice than the Rodgers team to put his Southern tag belts on. I let him know after this TV that I that I did put the belts on the Rodgers team uh, the night before, but I'm not going to use those guys anymore. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, Jerry was kind of like, well, you know, uh, you know, you don't like them. Well, uh, you know, I I kind of had to beat around the bush a little bit, and I, I couldn't be quite as honest with Jerry as maybe I was with Charlie Cook and Tommy Siegler about why things were working out the way they were. But I really knew that Jerry's a pretty good judge of talent, and he had to realize those particular guys had no chance of ever being big time. Uh, personality profile is the next segment, obviously. It's the new South, it's the new Tennessee tag champions, Ron Wright, my brother, Robert. Uh, Les congratulates them, obviously, at the beginning of it for their big win. They had just won the night before and regained the Tennessee tag titles. And they discussed how unusual it was for tag titles to switch back and forth so fast. Uh, three times in five weeks, that title changed hands between those two teams. And when Les asked my brother Robert why he thought it was, that was happening, Rob brought up the fact that I was badly injured on the same night that he and Ron Wright won the titles, and there was a fantastic amount of animosity between the two teams because of what they had done to me. Uh, Ron Wright added that a lot of blood had also been spilled during that last five weeks, which is true. There was a, a lot of blood in every one of their tag matches. Les asked how I was doing, asked my brother how I was doing, and there was a brief conversation about that, but mainly this profile was dedicated to the most unusual main event for the following Friday. It was a specially ordered NWA Tennessee tag match with no time limit, no disqualification, and two special referees, Norvell Austin and Les Thatcher. Uh, they talked about how unusual it was for the NWA to get this involved in a regional title match. And that's for sure. The NWA, uh, it was a, a governing body, but uh, they really didn't care much what you did in your territory, and they really didn't uh, tell you how to run your business. So this was an unusual situation in which there was an order sent down from the NWA that, that there should be this title match, and these were the rules. They were going to have no time limit, no DQ, and two referees. So Lest asked Rob if, uh, if he had any idea why this happened. Why would the NWA get involved in a regional title match? And Rob told a really quick little story about uh, my having had 32 matches in St. Louis in 1973 and 74 in the home of the president of the NWA, Sam Muchnick. Um, he also told Les how I'd become a star there at an early age and how much Sam liked me. He also talked about a telephone conversation he recently, recently had had with Sam about my injury to see how I was doing and, uh, and to find out, uh, you know, basically how it all went down. Uh, they then asked Les about uh, how he felt about being a special referee in that match. And Les, being Les, stayed very neutral about what side he was on. It, it was a great profile that kept me in the mix even though I hadn't, I'd been totally missing from Southeastern Wrestling for a total of five weeks at that point. Uh, they also managed to serve the integrity of the personality profile by not making their interviews 
about what they were going to do the following Friday night during that profile. They kept it strictly to wrestling and to business and uh, not to promoting shows. Uh, they would all three have their chance later in this show to do the promotion part of what needed to be done. Third TV match was another quality win for Norvell. Uh, he took on Rick Connors and uh, beat him with a hit, flying headbutt coming off the ropes. Uh, I had him carry Connors out of the ring. I mean, Norvell's flying headbutt every time they instant replayed it. Sometimes you could see moves that weren't really connecting or if they're, if it, the bad thing about slow motion is it tells the tale. And it, uh, when Norvell was doing these diving headbutts off those ropes, uh, it was a connection always. It was normally top of his head to somebody's face. Uh, it looked tremendous. So, you know, I told him, you know, after this is over, I wanted to carry Connors out of there. So Connors laid there and sold it, and, and uh, they had to go and, and, and bring him back to the dressing room, not under his own power. Uh, Austin came to the set after the commercial break, expecting to find Les Thatcher there to do the interview, who was to also be a referee in the ring with him the following Friday night. So, so uh, Les was again, I had set it up, Les and I had talked about it. We used that third set again, and I had Les on that third set. And when Norvell joined uh, Phil Rainey at the set, the regular set, he was kind of, uh, you know, looking for Les Thatcher. You know, so and I think he asked, you know, uh, well, where's Les Thatcher? You know, and so so Phil Rainey, uh, uh, Austin started off asking him right away, you know, well, why come Thatcher isn't there? Don't he have guts enough to do this interview out here with me? So Phil had to tell Norvell on camera to take a look at the monitor that was off to their right, and he would see less in that monitor that they were both on the screen at the same time. Well, Norvell had this dumbfounded look on his face because he truly was dumbfounded. He had never seen a split screen shot on a wrestling television show before, so he didn't even know to be looking at the monitor that uh, you're actually on the screen right now and Les Thatcher is on the other side. But it didn't stop him long. He dove right into the big Tennessee tag championship match the following Friday where they were both going to be special referees. He insulted the hell out of Les right off by asking him. He hoped he was a better referee than he was a wrestler. And uh, so I kind of got a laugh in the studio up top. He continued to any warn less about staying out of his way or suffer the consequences in this tag match in which they're both going to referee it. And uh, Les again was the consummate professional, and he promised to do his best to make the tag match as legal as possible. Norvell on the other side of the screen laughed at it and promised to make a win for his friends, <laughs> the assassin and rock hunter. So it was a very good interview, and it built a lot of interest in that main event match. Last TV match was going to get everyone up. Uh, the assassin, Rock Hunter, took the ring after took to the ring after their opponents, Dennis Hall and Rocky Smith, were introduced. They welcomed by a chorus of booze from the TV studio crowd. Obviously, uh, they had a great match with these two great, very good workers, Dennis Hall and Rocky Smith, super workers. Finally, Hunter pulled out his brass knucks behind the referee's back, and he opened up Dennis Hall, a cut on Dennis Hall. Uh, tagged in the assassin who head-butted, head-butted him down and almost out, uh, Dennis Hall, and then they both started pulling Hall up on two counts. He's bleeding, 
and uh, the fans in the studio are going crazy. I mean, all they're they're wanting him to make a comeback, but but he's not going to make a comeback. Two or three times they pulled him up before the assassin just went across the ring and hit, but it Hall's partner Rocky Smith off the apron and onto the concrete floor. And as he was walking back, uh, the referee gets between him and his corner, and and he's he's asking him, "What the hell are you doing?" And he just headbutts the referee. So referee goes down. Now you've got uh, Smith on the floor. You've got the referee off to the side of the ring. And uh, both the assassin and Hunter then just start taking turns on the bloody Dennis Hall. And the crowd's getting louder with each move. They're just taking turns, headbutting him and nailing him. Uh, Robert and Ron Wright hit the ring. And, boy, the heel scooted quickly. Obviously, the crowd just... They roared. I mean, uh, they wanted to see somebody get those guys. The At this point, the assassin and rock hunter have really gotten a lot of heat in Southeastern, and they're, they're, the fans are just hating them. After the commercial, it was interview time again. Uh, we used the third set again for the assassin and hunter and the special referee, Norvell Austin. They were all on one side of the screen, and Robert and Ron Wright and Les are sitting at the set. Uh, that back and forth between these six guys was great. Uh, they all had their say about how there really was a need for two referees. They focused on the fact that, man, after what just happened in the match just a second ago, there needs to be two referees. Maybe the NWA was smart to have ordered this and to put two referees in the ring. So uh, it finished up really good. Uh, it's a very exciting way to end the show. And, uh, I was really happy with that television program, and I thought we would do pretty darn good the next Friday night. Well, Ron, this is a good place to take a break, and let's do that right now with a few words about the latest Super Studcast, Super Studcast number 23 with Dr. Tom Pritchard. So many wonderful Super Studcasts come from the addition of young wrestlers who became a part of Continental Wrestling as they struggled to find their identities in the sport. At TNStud.com or Patreon.com slash Studcast. This young wrestler arrived in Pensacola, Florida in the mid-1980s, driven for success. He quickly became a star and is still highly involved in today's wrestling. He is the inimitable Dr. Tom Pritchard. Part 1 of Super Studcast number 23, now available, is absolutely phenomenal and dr tom has agreed to continue with part two and add the unique opportunity for patrons to ask their questions of the doctor patrons can go to patreon and leave your questions there tom will answer them in part two as well as more questions from the stud and brian three fascinating hours of wrestling history comes to life in super studcast number 23 at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast for only $2.99 also fans don't forget the highly anticipated second release of the Lost Territory Continental Wrestling 5-Pack with 5 DVDs and 12 hours of exclusive action now available for a short time only $39.99 include shipping don't miss this last opportunity to get your piece of fantastic wrestling history at tnstud.com then click on Stud Store and get yours there you hear it the latest Super Studcast with some people have called the Doctor of Desire. Dr. Tom Pritchard, the Heavenly Bodies. He's been a part of so many great tag teams, so many great moments in wrestling, specifically in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're going to talk a lot about continental wrestling, 
not just Pensacola, but also Knoxville. We're going to talk about that famous angle with him and the dirty white boy, and I guess I should say the dirty white girl as well, and so much more. Find out about the inner workings of Paul Bosch's Houston Wrestling Office. This is a fantastic episode. Check it out today, tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. You can get in the door for only $2.99. It is the best deal in wrestling. We'll have a little bit more about that at the end of the program. But, Ron, let's go back to Knoxville. I think we're about to talk about the card Friday, October 24th, 1975. Yes, we are. And uh, this television that I've just described is the one that's promoting this card. So the first match on the card on Friday night, October 24th, 75, is Jerry Myatt against that newcomer, Don Lambrick. And Lambrick wins that match. The second one was Les Thatcher against Bill Dundee and another great match. Uh, these two guys are basically just about the, exactly the same size, and they could both move, and they both knew how to have a match. Uh, they wrestled to a 20-minute time limit draw that the fans really enjoyed. I mean, when the fans cheer at the end of a 20-minute match, uh, you know that they have really enjoyed it, uh, and and that the fans would just went crazy. I, it was like getting a standing ovation at the end of a uh, some type of uh, event or a show. I mean, uh, the fans were really into it. The third match was Norvell Austin uh, beating Don Wright in another great match. Uh, the next match was that loss of the Southern Tag Titles of Charlie Cook and Tommy Siegler to Buddy Rogers Jr. and Lenny Rogers that I mentioned early in their show. Uh, Siegler and Cook and I, we sat down and talked together about the finish uh, because none of the three of us thought they should win the belts, but it was part of the deal that I had made with Jarrett, and, uh, and I wanted to be a man of my word, and, uh, and we were going to switch it. So uh, we worked on a finish together which is a good idea in, in a situation like this in which you have two good workers that you want to get over and you want to, and you want to see if we can make money together. And then uh, you're trying to figure out how you're going to let this sorry team beat them and not hurt them. Uh, that, that was a little bit tricky for us. But um, we worked on a finish, as I said. And uh, what happened in the finish is Buddy Rogers Jr., uh, covers Charlie Cook. They were all four in there at the same time. And uh, one team covers one opponent and the other team does the same for the other. It's one of those deals where the referee can't really see but one pair at a time. Buddy Rogers Jr. had covered Charlie Cook. And behind the referee's back, laying behind him, was Tommy Siegler covering Lenny Rogers at the same time. Uh, and the referee happened to be looking straight ahead at Charlie Cook and he didn't see the pin behind him with Siegler at the same time. So when he rang the bell, he reached over and ra raised Buddy Rogers' hand, who was in front of him. And Siegler, by standing behind him, raised his own hand, thinking that he had won as well. So uh, we recorded the match just in case I ever wanted to show it. I couldn't really think that I would ever want to show it, but there might be a reason. And uh, I got to where we were recording more matches because – they were so good with all that big crowd. Uh, they were so much better than, than the studio, even though the studio was wild and pretty raucous at times. 
that uh, being in the buildings with these larger crowds was really an effective way to promote the product. Uh, both Siegler and Charlie Cook took about 80% of the match. We talked about that, too, about after we decided on this would be the finish. Then uh, I think I told them on the way out, guys, I want you all to take most of this match. And I watched it, and they took at least 80% of the match. Uh, the main event was obviously that night, the NWA ordered Tennessee tag match with no time limit, no disqualification, two referees, Les Thatcher and Norvell Austin. And it was a wild and woolly affair, as, they, as some people say about wrestling. And it ended with me making my first appearance since my injury at a live match. And no one was aware that I was even in the building. Everybody at the end of the match were fighting. Robert was bleeding badly. Uh, after Hunter had hit him with his hidden brass knucks fairly early in the match, so he'd been bleeding most of the match. Uh, everybody's fighting at the end. Ron Wright pulled Hunter out of the ring. They're fighting on the floor. Thatcher and Norvell are fighting outside on the floor. And the assassin has Robert, who's been bleeding for 15, 20 minutes, down. And he's uh, they're the only ones in the ring. And the assassin is just continually dragging him up and headbutting him uh, into that bloody face. And then when Rob would go down, he would pick him up and drag him up to his feet and headbutt him again. So I watched from upstairs in the old Jacobs building, uh, you know, standing way in the back so that nobody could see me. And about the second time I saw the assassin drag him to his feet, I went down the aisle into the ring. Uh, I was halfway down the aisle before people realized I was there. And once they did, it was like the whole building just erupted. I mean, everybody turned toward me. Uh, they, they, they had no idea I was even there. Uh, so I nailed Hunter, who was outside, still fighting with Ron Wright. And uh, once I got him down, I took away his brass knucks and I rolled up into the ring where there's just Robert and the assassin are still there. And I sneaked up behind the assassin, put the brass knucks on my hand, and I tapped him on the back. And he was bent over trying to pull Robert up off the mat again so he could headbutt him again. And he kind of shrugged me off with his shoulder like, you know, hey, I'm busy here. I, th I, I knew he was thinking that it was his partner, Hunter. <laughs> so, so he continued to try to raise Robert from off the canvas, and I tapped him on the back a second time. And uh, again, he shrugged me off. So, you know, now he's about got Rob on his feet, and I didn't want him to hit him with another headbutt. So I tapped him the third time, and he finally let Rob drop on his face, and he turned around to see who it was. And uh, when he turned around, I hit him with those knucks, and uh, the crowd popped. Uh, the knucks were sharp. There was the old-style uh, brass knucks that had the little V-shaped over the knuckles and metal there was nasty, nasty things. And uh, the knucks were sharp, and they ripped a hole in, <laughs> in the assassin's mask and a little hole in his head at the same time. So he was bleeding before he hit the mat. Uh, I put Rob on top of him, and I left the ring. Les Thatcher rolled into the ring and counted the assassin out for the biggest darn pop of the night. I mean, uh, we were recording it, and it was going to be perfect for the next television show. Uh, we were going to need it because uh, I'm going to come back on the very next show. I, I'm, I've reached a point to where I think I'm, I'm going to go to work whether I'm able or not. 
Well, it sounds like a hot finish to the show, Ron, but those fans didn't know you were going to be there, so it wouldn't factor into the house. How was the house? And let's go through the payoffs once again. Well, it was cold and raining that night. Uh, we had to move inside the old smaller Jacobs building. Uh, we'd only been in there about two times since May. Very lucky during the course of that summer not to lose more events than that and have to move that big amphitheater into the little building. I'd forgotten just how small that little building was. Uh, it was packed to the walls, and it barely held the 3,000 fans that were there that night. Uh, it very much concerned me that we were going to have to we were going to have a very hard time getting many more people into that building. And I hated to think that I was about to maximize my company's gross in Knoxville at around $9,000 because the building was too small. Uh, so this had a great bearing on my decision that I would had already made earlier in the month of October to run in the Coliseum as much as possible until the next summer. Uh, we're going to start that process within two weeks. We're going to first week in November have three straight shows in the Coliseum. The gross was again that night in the 9,000 range with about 2,500 total payoff. Uh, the bottom guys, Myatt and Lambert, Dundee, Don Wright, Buddy Rogers Jr., Lenny Rogers, and the ref got about 140 each. Charlie Cook and Tommy Siegler got about 175. And all six in the main event got 200 bucks each. Uh, there again, not bad considering it's October, uh, the very most difficult time of the year for wrestling. And uh, guys are still, some of those main eventers are making 200 plus for a show. Uh, if I'd had five or six of those shows a week, <laughs> those guys are, they're happy campers. They're over that $1,000 a week at that point, uh, not there, but uh, we are going to be there someday, and it won't be that long. So uh, now, Brian, I, I have a little surprise for listeners today, uh, and uh, you're aware of it. I, I met a couple of Studcast fans and old wrestling fans in Knoxville about a year ago, and it was two brothers named Richard and Robert Hill. They told me that they had audio tapes of many Southeastern wrestling TV shows from 1975 and even forward. Uh, they had been communicating with me since then, and uh, they now organized their audios, and, uh, and they started to send them to me. So today in this studcast, I want to play two audios for our fans. The first is the audio background from the opening of the Southeastern Wrestling TV show. It's the voice of TV ring announcer, house show announcer, and secondary commentator for the TV show, Phil Rainey. And bear in mind as you hear this, that, that uh, while this audio is running, uh, there are two character-generated wrestlers that are in that logo locked up that start actually making wrestling moves as the as Phil Rainey is doing the audio. And they make these moves inside the Southeastern Wrestling logo as if they're having a match. When video and audios combine, this opening was so far ahead of what anybody else in the sport was doing at that time. It's just ridiculous. I mean, uh, this was a lot of thought put into it, never been done before. Uh, I don't know that it's ever done after that. Uh, it's just an example of why we were voted the best wrestling show in the world by the Wrestling Writers Association of America. 
And I hope you enjoy this, fans out there. And uh, and I have something else for you after this one. So, uh, Brian, if uh, if you don't mind, uh, can you play that audio? <laughs> It's Southeastern Wrestling, sanctioned by the National Wrestling Alliance, the major league of professional wrestling. Join us now for the action and thrills of the world's toughest sport for the top wrestlers in the nation. Now let's go to ringside with commentator Les Thatcher for today's matches. If you'd like to visit my website at tnstud.com, you'll see the round logo with Southeastern on it. It's in white, and it's red and white letters in the circle that says Southeastern Wrestling. It's around the two wrestlers. Uh, you can find it by clicking on either the Studcast page or the gallery. It's on both. The wrestlers inside that logo are the ones that actually come alive and make the wrestling moves that the audio plays. So, uh, you know, we're really proud. Les and I had spent so much time. Uh, we had spent four months waiting on a company out of Charlotte, North Carolina to do this artwork and to do the things necessary to make these wrestling wrestlers move inside that logo. Uh, we were really proud of this and I've just had so many for years and years. Once people knew that I had anything to do with it, they were always talking about what a great opening that opening was. Uh, but I got another one for everybody today. And uh, this next one is really special. Uh, it's the voice of Ron Wright on his very first Southeastern Wrestling personality profile in 1975. Uh, now, don't be expecting to hear Ron Wright the, the way I impersonate him. You know, uh, this was personality profile segment of every show. It wasn't intended to be an interview that wrestlers you know, had the opportunity to make the big promo to sell the tickets. This was personality profiles were just that low key interviews to find out what wrestlers were really like when they, when they weren't wrestling. Uh, Ron's voice in this particular interview is low key, very personal. And in this first, in this five minutes uh, of this profile, fans will get to know the real Ron Wright. That was the whole concept of personality profile. We wanted fans to get to know the wrestlers personally and uh, sometimes having a personal uh, connection to your favorite star is a, is a really, really personal uh, and a perfect way to, to get people into the sport and to love their wrestling. Uh, so uh, you'll also find that he's much more intelligent than most fans think. Uh, when they hear that Ron Wright voice, they have a tendency to think, well, this guy, you know, what kind of guy is he? You know, and I admired and respected both he and his brother, Don. They, to me, they were both smart, successful, hardworking businessmen. And uh, Les, as usual, is excellent in this profile. Uh, and I think that these profiles, these personality profiles were a big part of what made Southeastern, this Southeastern television production so successful. And uh, if you don't mind, Brian, uh, if you could play this uh, personality profile for him. I'd have to go along with that, Les. We did have a, quite a few run-ins back then, but it looks like that's kind of a thing of the past now. Yeah, I think so, too. And talking about the past, let's talk about how Ron Wright began in wrestling as an amateur and how you returned pro. 
Well, my wrestling career really started when I was right at the age of nine, maybe ten, wrestling at the boys' club on the amateur team. And uh, I continued to wrestle amateur till I was the ripe age of 16. And uh, right about the time I was 15 and 16, we used to have a lot of the professional wrestlers when they were staying over in Kingsport come down to the boys' club and uh, work out. They'd lift weights, wrestle, keep in shape. And uh, looked like I kind of served as their punching bag down there for a couple of years from some of the old-time hands like... Uh, Roddy Red Roberts, Rick Smalley, Carl Kowalski, Wild Bill Caney, and some of the older type wrestlers that had retired from the wrestling game now. And uh, due to the fact that uh, I guess while I had uh, enough guts, I just kept taking the punishment and the roughness that they gave me down there. And little by little, they trained me and helped me out and finally got me started. And uh, Mickey Barnes is a man that finally started in professional wrestling. And uh, I had my first professional match before I quite turned the age of 17. Uh, when I was 16, I weighed about... 220, 225, and looked quite a bit older than I was, and uh, had someone to sign the parent's name on a <laughs> fictitious uh, notarized statement stating that I was 21, which I wasn't, but uh, I was one of the few men that got started in professional wrestling under the age of 21. And of course, uh, the fans in this area certainly know the rest is history. Ron Wright has held many of the regional titles and had a lot of run-ins, and I think some of the classic battles, Ron, were with the late great Whitey Caldwell. I know uh, Whitey and I were partners against you and your brother many times, but I think some of the chain matches I saw between you and Whitey had to be some of the most vicious wrestling matches I've ever witnessed in my career. Definitely. The chain matches I had with Whitey Caldwell, uh, we've had them all over the country, and uh, they were the roughest matches that I've ever been in my life, and uh, Whitey Caldwell was one of the roughest men that I ever got in the ring with, and uh, those matches have went down in history. I know all the wrestling magazines all over the nation had several write-ups on those chain matches, and uh, They'll probably be in the record books and the wrestling office for several years to come. Later. Well, I agree with you. Whitey, I think pound for pound, probably the toughest man in the sport. But uh, let's talk a little bit about family. I've got two beautiful daughters and a fine-looking wife, and uh, how's the home life? Uh, everything at home just fine. The family's uh, out of the States right now on vacation. They've been gone for the past week and be gone another week. But uh, we live in, uh, presently, everyone still, I'm known as the Kingsport uh, back alley brawler, but really my home is in Gray Station, Tennessee. That's halfway between Johnson City and Kingsport. And uh, but although I'd lived in Kingsport so long, if people still know me as a Kingsport man, but uh, I own a farm up there, and uh, we have horses and uh, have a swimming pool up there, and we kind of like country living. Less kind of yeah. enjoy getting out of town. I know you raise horses, Ron, and uh, raise some fine ones. And of course, uh, I know you're not ready for retirement just yet, anyway, but. You're in the construction business on the side as well, aren't you? That's true. I have a construction firm on the side. We uh, build any type building and uh, specialized block and brick work. And uh, we have several contracts building a few high schools around and uh, buildings of that nature, which is uh, quite a large uh, job to take on. But we go ahead and handle all of that. And, and of course, uh, I guess you'll be getting into that uh, when you get ready to retire from wrestling full time, right? That's true. And uh, I always have plenty to do. And uh, when I do retire, I'm going to have my hands full taking care of everything. Hobbies, and I know the biggest hobby for Ron Wright because I've been in it is an airplane, and Ron flies all over the country, and uh, he enjoys it very much. Why don't you tell the folks a little bit about your plane? What kind you've got? Uh, I have a twin-engine Apache Les. It's an uh, instrument-equipped airplane, and uh, got where we were wrestling so much and making such long trips that I was having to stay away from home too much. So I got the idea, well, I'll go uh, get my airplane pilot's license and buy me an airplane, and. Uh, my four and five hundred mile trips now, I can still wind up being home uh, 12, 1, 2 o'clock where it used to take me all night to drive back home. And uh, I enjoy the airplane quite a bit, and uh, it is kind of a hobby to me. Well, I'll test the fact you're, uh, you don't fly quite as wild as you wrestle. 
I was a little leery about getting that plane the first time, but Ron Wright's a real good pilot. I assure you, that's one thing I respect is an airplane. Those, those things are dangerous, and a man has to be careful when you're in the air in them, Les. Well, that's our pers personality profile for today. Ron Hanson. Don't try to attempt to uh, tell people what to think. I hope everyone out there enjoyed these two audios from the distant past. I mean, I'm extremely sorry that none of the actual shows from Southeastern Wrestling in Knoxville are here today or survived. Uh, but at least there are these audios, and I look forward, to be honest with you, to, to fans' reactions uh, to these. You know, uh, to judge if for myself whether they'd like to have any more of these or not. I believe that I can get these audios, little audio sound bites of interviews and for maybe no telling how many Southeastern wrestling programs and, and be able to present what I do here every week about the cards and the wrestling and the television program, especially uh, this would add so much more to those television programs and my way of explaining them to actually hear those wrestler voices. In fact, I may run one next week of my first personality profile, and I've listened to it several times, and uh, I can't believe, Brian, how young I was. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm like lost almost. You know, I'm like, wow, I can't believe I was that bad. But, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great uh, great opportunity for us, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing from fans. Uh, just tell me whether you like these or not, and uh, we'll try to keep using them. Well, Ron, as we wrap up this week's edition of the Studcast, we want to remind the listeners once again, the latest Super Studcast, Super Studcast number 23, available right now with Dr. Tom Pritchard. This is a great deep dive into wrestling history, a great deep dive into Dr. Tom's history with the Fuller family. Find out what it's like to ride around in a car with Robert Fuller and Jimmy Golden and so much more tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast only $2.99 gets you in the door this is a memorable edition of the super studcast you can follow the tennessee stud on twitter at ron fuller welch you can follow me on twitter at great brian last you can follow the arcadian vanguard podcast network on twitter at super podcasts you can hear me on the 605 super podcast at 605pod.com or available wherever it is that you find your favorite podcasts. Ron, do you want to say another word about the upcoming tribute to Bullet Bob Armstrong? Yes, uh, you know, uh, I want to remind folks that it's on Saturday night, November 23rd, 2019, uh, at uh, what used to be at, uh, at the crossings, uh, used to be a center stage. Uh, it's a big place out there on 231, just south of Dothan, a beautiful, beautiful structure. I mean, uh, I'm looking forward to just seeing the inside of it. It's a fantastic venue. Uh, if you'd like to get your tickets there in advance, you can go to, you can pick them up at E-B-E-N-T-B-R-I-T-E, eventbrite.com or thecrossingsbigcreek.com. Uh, it's only $30 for one seat. And it's $50 for two seats. Order now. I can tell you now, the, these seats are going fast. Uh, there's a limited amount of seats that can be sold. It's a, not a huge building, but it is spectacular inside. Uh, you can also get the tickets at the door the night of the event. And uh, really looking forward to it. I think this will be a most memorable evening for anyone 
that is a Bob Armstrong fan. And I can't really, I really can't wait to, 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 to be there and to be a part of this. Is there any truth to the rumors, Ron, that you'll be wearing your tuxedo? <laughs> That's a good idea, Brian. I hadn't thought of that. I'll tell you. Well, I'm afraid if I do, though, that Bob will end up with my cane and he'll break <laughs> it over my head or my back again. And I had that done to me so many times. I was supposed to be breaking canes on his butt, and uh, it it didn't happen very often. Somehow, I end up getting. I want to tell you a real story about that cane. Just a second. Uh, <laughs> he hit me in Knoxville, Tennessee. I jumped up on the apron with my tuxedo on. I had my cane, and I took a swing at him. And he ducked it, and I fumbled and dropped my cane into the ring right at his feet. And he picked it up, and he hit me in the side of my head with that cane. And, and it, it hurt so bad. It, I, I went down on my side on the ring, but the cane broke in half and it flew into the crowd and hit two spectators and end up having lawsuits because of Bob's <laughs> blasting me with the cane. But uh, I mean, uh, no, I, that's a good idea, though. The, the tuxedo, it might be a good time to break out the tuxedo. So, uh, you know, I want to talk about what we're going to do next week. Okay, Brian, uh, I, I hope nobody is superstitious out there because I'm going to go back in the ring uh, on the next show, which is uh, basically about two months after my collarbone injury, to face one of the most dangerous wrestlers of all time, Jody Hamlin, the assassin. And the match is going to be on Halloween night, 1975. So, you know... I, I got to tell you, I'm apprehensive about the date that it is. I'm not being, I haven't had the best of luck during this time frame, And I'm going to go back in the ring for the first time on Halloween night of 75. We're also going to take a close up look at what I had worked so hard to do in October. That's going to pay off such in such a fashion in November of 1975. Uh, it's going to be the month, the night, November of 1975, that I finally feel that Southeastern Wrestling has a real shot at being a success. Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller, I'm the great Brian Last. The story continues next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains. <laughs>